What a joy it is to be with you all this Sunday morning. Amen. I'm excited. I'm pumped up. I'm ready to to worship our one true and living God by diving into the word and seeing what thus says the Lord. So if you will be so kind to join me in grabbing your Bibles or your smartphone and, and turning to John, the gospel of according to John, and we're going to go to chapter 8 today, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And today we are continuing our series on questions Christians hope no one would ask them. Questions that Christians hope that no one will ask them, okay? And as we uh, look at this, we're on part two today, we're dealing with the question, isn't your church sexually repressive? And in other words, uh, if someone was to come up to you, maybe at work or a family member, and say, you know, the problem with the church is this church is just sexually oppressive. The church keeps us from being free, and from enjoying pleasure. Um, so we're going to answer that question. Is the church sexually repressive? All right. Now, today we're coming from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And if you uh, look at your Bibles, you'll probably notice that there's like some strange brackets or indentations around it for verses 1 through 11. And I want to do a, a really quick explanation of that at the bottom of your Bible probably gives you an explanation. This account is actually not recorded in the earliest manuscripts of John that we have unearthed, okay? It is most likely written by somebody other than the Gospel of John and was added to uh, the Gospel of John by scribes probably at a, a later date. But before you go into despair thinking that I just ruined Christmas, I want you to understand that the scholars that I trust and respect, they all agree that this passage uh, represents the ministry of Jesus, meaning that there's nothing false in here as we compare it to other Gospels, and that the historicity of this account is most likely true because early church fathers referenced it um, even before it appears in the manuscript, Okay. Uh, the passage also aligns with other passages in the New Testament. It also shows us a beautiful picture, I think, of Jesus, of his gentleness, um, of his commitment to both grace and truth. So we're going to dive into this passage. We're going to uncover some beautiful things about it. And if, you, uh, if that worries you at all, this is a great time for me to plug in next week's sermon. Amen. As we're dealing with the questions that Christians hope no one asks, we're going to talk about the authenticity of Scripture next week. And we have a guest preacher that I'm really excited about, uh, Professor uh, Timothy Paul Jones, a New Testament scholar, an excellent preacher, excellent evangelism. He's going to come and talk about uh, how we got the Bible, talk about early manuscripts, talk about how we know uh, that the scriptures is real and how we affirm uh, the books of the Bible, okay? So next week is an excellent week, an excellent week for you to bring unsaved loved ones or people who may be on the fringes or someone who's questioned the Bible to you. I guarantee you don't want to miss it. Also next week, by God's grace, we will be uh, baptizing uh, a number of believers, a number of people who've put their faith and trust in Jesus. Amen? So let's, 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 let's treat next week as if it's almost a uh, friends and family day. All right? So let's, let's make it a friends and family day. So invite your friends, invite your family, and we're going to celebrate God's word together. So John chapter 8, starting at verse 1, and the precious, authentic, uh, wonderful word of God reads, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, 
early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Amen. You may be seated in the name of Jesus You know, the issue of uh, sexual intimacy and sex has been a a hot topic and a culturally relevant subject (laughs) ever since the first man and woman, I'm sure. Um, It is an intriguing subject. It is something that constantly catches people's attention. And in America, we know that sex became kind of a a mainstream headline or, or conversation piece starting with the sexual revolution where it became okay and, uh, and, and no longer taboo just to talk about it and to kind of freely love, as some would say. And we know that this really hit a, a climax or a, a, a tipping point in the 1960s and the 1970s. In the 1950s, um, according to uh, one study in Chip Ingram's book, Culture Shock, which is a fascinating book, I encourage you to get it, and specifically the third chapter is just excellent on human sexuality, Uh, uh, Chip gives uh, some statistics of a major survey that said in 1950, 5%, 5% of high school girls were sexually active and 10% of high school boys. Just five decades later, the statistics showed that 70% of girls reported being sexually active in high school and 80% of boys. So when we talk about the effects of the sexual revolution and where we are as a nation, that was done, uh, I think, almost 12 years ago, that one survey. Uh, We, as a culture, um, we we have very different views as a culture on sexuality than the Bible has. And as Christians, our sexual ethic needs to be different than the world because the, the Bible paints a different picture of sexuality. But as we are going throughout our daily lives, as we're at work, as we're at home watching television, as we're interacting with our teenagers, as we're browsing the internet, we want to understand that, uh, that, that a lot of the, the, the picture that's being painted about sexuality in the church is a, is a negative picture. And people may ask you or look at you and think about the way that you view sexual intimacy as a Christian. They may, may think that, it's, uh, it's, that the church is repressive, that the church is oppressive, that the church is just trying to keep us down. But we want to understand that the Bible paints a glorious picture of human sexuality 
And we as Christians want to be able to articulate that in a very clear way and stand on God's word when it comes to it. Amen? So I just want to go real quick through six myths or lies about the church and, and sex. And these uh, come again from Chip Ingram's Culture Shock uh, with, with me adding and subtracting some things. But the first myth is this, is that God is anti-sex. That God is anti-sex. All right? We have a, a tendency to, to view that as if God is against sex, but we want to know that that's not the case at all. God is pro-sex, and he designed it to provide a number of things. Number one, he designed it to provide physical pleasure. Physical pleasure. He also designed it to provide procreation, a way and a means in which we can have children, and then relational intimacy. So God is not against sex. He's for it. He created it for us. Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 27. Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 24 teaches us that. Myth number two, a second myth that some of us believe about sexual intimacy is this, is that Christians' sex lives and views of sex are dull, boring, and out of touch. Right? Christians' sex lives and views of sex are dull, boring, and out of touch. And the truth is, is that the scriptures command God's people um, to, to be downright erotic with their love in the covenant relationship of marriage. Okay? Um, the scriptures do not paint a picture of sexual intimacy within marriage as something that should just be uh, bland and boring and uh, simply routine. In fact, we have a whole book, The Songs of Solomon, that show us that God wants us to celebrate each other, uh, those who are, are, are married, and to appreciate each other. Paul commands it to the church at Corinth as they were battling against the secular views of their day with sec human sexuality, that the husband and wife, that they should unite regularly and intentionally. And in and, and doing so, you're being obedient to the word. In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 through 19, we read, these words, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely dear, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated with always in her love. Amen? So it's a call throughout scripture to be intoxicated, uh, men, with our wives and to celebrate um, the, their beauty. Myth number three, as long as people love each other, sex is okay with God. As long as people love each other, sex is okay with God. And, and that's a myth. And some people think that, that the church is repressive because that's a myth. But that's not being oppressive. It's not being repressive. That's actually being free when we understand the truth. Amen? And the truth is, is that the Bible prohibits all sexual relationships outside of marriage. And this is a common theme throughout the scripture. And this, this isn't in, in the Old Testament, but it's in the New. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, uh, one of the Ten Commandments we read that you should not commit adultery. You should not have a sexual relationship uh, with someone who is married or outside of your marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 tells us to flee, to run from sexual immorality. One of my favorites and is, 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 I mean, clearest scriptures on this is Ephesians chapter 5, 3. It says, but among you there must not be even a hint, even a hint 
of sexual immorality. The last Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 says, It is God's will that you avoid sexual sin. So that myth that says as long as you love each other, it's okay. Um, it, it really is a myth. It's not okay. The scripture says that, no, uh, that the sexual intimacy is made for marriage. In fact, sex is supposed to be the marriage act. And sexual intimacy is best experienced and glorifies God when it's not just us giving our bodies together, but it's us giving our emotions to that person. It's us sharing our finances with that person. It's us sharing um, a, a deeper level with that person holistically. And when we take sex and use it outside of the means in which God provided, it, it's really bad. Like a fire in a fireplace. That's good. That's safe. That's warming. It's beautiful. We enjoy it. But a fire running rampant through your living room. It's not. Sex is powerful. It's like a, a fire. If we misuse it and misplace it, it can bring ruin. Sex was created by God to communicate that a person belongs exclusively, absolutely, and wholly to the other person. And we'll see even more why that's not repressive. The fourth myth, only a cosmic killjoy, totally out of touch with today's culture and people's needs, would prohibit sex outside of marriage. Only a cosmic killjoy, totally out of touch with today's culture and people's need, will prohibit sex outside of marriage. And the truth is, God prohibits all immoral outside of marriage because he desires to do this. He desires to protect you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, 23, that the wages, that the payment of sin is death. And, of course, it's physical death, but it's also spiritual death. When we are habitually, even as Christians, when we are habitually, intentionally running towards sin, we, though we are still in a covenant relationship with God, we are distancing ourselves from him. We are grieving the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is grieved, just like when human beings are grieved, it doesn't speak. He doesn't speak, excuse me. He doesn't speak. He doesn't allow the scriptures to have the impact that it could because they're sin in a way. So God desires to protect us. And some, some people say, well, and especially in our culture, well, sex is just physical. Sex is just physical. And that's just that's a lie. J.D. Greer says this. He says, if sex was just physical, why is it that adultery is so devastating to a relationship? more so than any other types of betrayal. If sex is just physical, why is it that when someone sits in my office and says, pastors, I, I've never told anyone this before, that 99% of the time is something sexual or experience uh, screams that sex cannot just be physical. Our experience, excuse me, screams that sex just cannot be physical. Sex is uh, bigger than just physical intimacy. But God puts these things in place and he doesn't put them in place though so that he would kill joy but so that we would have joy he wants to provide for us a a future that is healthy emotionally spiritually and physically god is not holding out to us the bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from above so for the person who thinks that sex is just physical and that god is just getting in my way and you're living in, in sexual sin I, I got some questions for you how is that how is that working for you 
for the one who's hiding that, that affair that you had with someone? How, how did that work out for you? How did it affect your kids? What is it like to log on to a computer screen and engage in sexual intimacy with someone who doesn't exist and who doesn't know you? How does it feel to have your life consumed by secrets and shame that you constantly have to cover up? Why? And what does it feel like to, to read a romance novel and have dreams and fantasies about people who don't exist? What does it feel like to have your thoughts continually controlled by sexual images that leave you guilty and even hating yourself? Listen, God created us for more than being enslaved to sexual sin. And we're going to see later how he deals with us in our sin and how he meets us and engages. Myth number five, everyone needs to sow their wild oats and experiment sexually before they settle down in a long-term relationship, right? And we, we've been told that he's just a boy, right? He's just a boy. We got that double standard for girls, right? Boys are just boys, girls are something else, right? I'll let you fill in the blank with your holy imagination. All right? But that's a myth. Um, everyone does not need or have to sow their wild oaks, and you don't have to experiment sexually and to have sexual intimacy with someone before you marry them in order to to try it out. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.16 says that sex is a sin against ourself. It's a sin whose roots are in spiritual rebellion and idolatry. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 through 7. When we uh, have sexual uh, intercourse or we pursue uh, sex outside of the covenant of marriage, uh, we, we actually are destroying ourselves. We are, are hurting ourselves. We are actually, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, we are actually worshiping ourselves. We are saying that this gives me pleasure and God doesn't. This fulfills a void for me that God can't. And it becomes all about me and my pleasure and my void and my life and my tiredness and not about God's glory. We're going to come to the last myth a little later. But I want us to understand that the Christian worldview on in sexual ethic is a lot different than the world's worldview on sexual ethic. Like the scripture gives us a different framework and a different picture. And today we want to look at this woman who is caught in adultery in John chapter 8 very quickly. And I want to show us what the church's posture towards sexual sin is. Because I believe that our posture towards uh, sexual intimacy as well as sexual sin is liberating and not, and not repressive, okay? And I believe that when we as a church know how to deal with sexual failure and sexual temptation and, and our sexual past, that, that, that then we can be free and we can help free others, all right? So we're just going to look at this real quick, and I want to uh, do two major things in looking at this, this passage. The first is I want us to show us um, just the religious way of dealing with sexual sin the religious way, okay? And I'm going to argue that the religious way is actually, it is oppressive. It is repressive. And then we're going to look at the gospel way. The gospel way of dealing with sexual sin. So let's go back to John chapter 8, and let's look at verse 1. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives 
Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. The Mount of Olives, uh, in, at least in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus constantly went to the Mount of Olives uh, to, to get away. And, and on the east side of the Mount of Olives is actually where his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, lived. So that's probably where he was recluding. And it says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst of him, they said to her, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what uh, do you say? So we see this picture. It's a it's really a, a terrifying, it's a sad picture. There's a, a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and she is brought before Jesus outside of the temple. And there, I mean, this is scary for her. Imagine this, this is all the religious leaders who were the most respected people at the time in Israel. They're surrounding her probably, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're raising this accusation to Jesus, and they're saying she's caught in adultery, which meant... If, uh, if everything panned out and went the way that it, it should have went, that this woman, her life was on the line. She should have been stoned. But what's sad is, is that the religious leaders, they're dealing with this in a very uh, ungodly way. And by religious, I mean in a way that is not showing really the heart of God, in a way that's against James chapter 1, in a way that's not looking out for people in a, in, a, in a way that's meant to build them up, okay? So they circle this woman, they bring these accusations against her, and why are they bringing her to Jesus? That's the question. Why Jesus? You all are the religious leaders. Why are you bringing this to Jesus? And here's really the heart behind what they're doing. They're trying to trap Jesus. And we see this throughout the Gospels. The scribes and the Pharisees are constantly trying to put Jesus in a horrible situation in a bad situation. And their thinking is this. Their thinking is, what is he going to do? Is he going to uphold the law, which says that if uh, uh, people are caught in adultery, according to the Mosaic law, that they need to be stoned to death, or is he going to give this woman grace? See, they were upset because Jesus was preaching grace and he was doing things that just, just didn't register with them, like healing a man on a Sabbath. Jesus was trying to show them that I am the one that's above the law. I created the law. I know the heart and the intent of the law. And they say, so what is he going to do? Is he going to show grace to this woman? And if he shows grace, we'll say, look, you're not a law keeper. But then if he doesn't show grace, we'll say, What's, look at you. How could you not have grace? He's not as grace-filled as we thought that he was in order to expose him before the people. And their heart was wrong. It was wrong towards Jesus, but it was also wrong towards this woman. They're trying to make an example of this woman. They're trying to embarrass this woman. They are humiliating this woman in order to make a point and to use her. And unfortunately, so often, people think that the church is sexually repressive because we do do that. When someone falls in sin, when someone makes a mistake, we, man, sometimes we, we just put them out there. And we can treat them as if we don't have a God who redeems. As if sexual sin is the, uh, the, 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 the unforgivable sin. And all the while, we are living in hypocrisy. They're ready to stone her. Can you see them? Starting to pick up their stones. 
Can you see them barking accusations at this woman? Can you see them? Snickering and laughing, saying, what, what is he going to do now? Probably calling her out of her name. This is the religious way. This is not the way that God wants us to, the attitude that he wants us to have. He doesn't want us to be ravenous wolves when people fall. But he wants us to have a different way. Then there's the gospel way. The gospel way is the way that, that Jesus shows us in this, in this passage. It says this, verse 6. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So there's this tension. What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to uphold the law of Moses? Or is he going to give grace to this woman? And either way, they think, they think we got him. But Jesus is so cool. <laughs> that Jesus is smooth. Wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. The Bible says that he just, he just started playing in, the, playing in the ground. Probably took a stoop, probably sat down, and he just begins to, to write on the ground. And we can only speculate about what he's writing. Perhaps he was writing their names and maybe their sin. I don't know, I doubt it, but. Perhaps he wrote Jeremiah 17 and 13 that says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be ridden in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Perhaps he wrote Deuteronomy chapter 22 and 22, which, which personally I lean towards. There's no way to know, but, but I, I, if he did write this, this would have just been so smooth and so cool. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. Now, a couple things we want to understand about this. Number one is we can look at this and say this is just so cruel that God would do this, that he would stone someone who was a part of Israel that was that was in sexual sin. Uh, and we're no longer under this theocracy, right? Well, I mean, this is not the way things work today, but with Israel, God saved them from Egypt in a mighty way in order that they would be missional to the other nations and in order that their holiness would, would, would lead people to him. So there were some rules in place. There were some things in place. But, but second, this just wasn't a flippant stone, and this wasn't a, 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 just a witch hunt. In order for someone to be stoned for being uh, in, a, in adultery, which shows us how highly God thinks of, of marriage, but in order for that to happen, there had to be two people who actually saw it with their own eyes. And if they were found to be lying, they themselves would be in great danger and trouble. And it wasn't like, oh, we just saw them coming out of the house together. No, they had to be in the act together. But this is amazing what this scripture says. And this is why I believe the, the religious leaders of the day uh, begin to walk away. That's what the text says. Look at your Bible. The text, the, the text says, it says, look, it says, and he bent down and he wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus le was left alone with the woman standing before him. What made them drop the stone? Now, some people will read this and they say, well, when Jesus said, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw the, a stone at her, they would say, oh, Jesus brought out the fact that we're all sinners, 
and that we can never judge sin, that we should never speak evil, that we should never bring up someone's sin, that we should never uh, uh, call someone out on sin. So when they realized that Jesus said that we're all sinners, they just dropped their, their stones and they just walked away. Right? This, this whole attitude of we don't judge sin, we just let people be and just kind of let them live. But that's not what Jesus is doing. In fact, that's what culture says, right? No longer is John 3.16 the favorite Christian most known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's no longer the verse people run to. No, it's Matthew 7 and 1. Do not judge. Right? It's like, don't judge. That's everybody's favorite verse right now, right? That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is so magnificent. He's so brilliant. He, He is so fresh. He said, let's play a game then. And he quotes this verse, and what he's doing is he's bringing out the fact, and they all knew it as religious leaders, that he caught them in sin. And what is their sin? It's the sin of partiality. The law says if a man and a woman is caught in adultery, let that man and woman be caught. But there's no woman. There's no man. Only the woman is before them. So even in trying to pass this judgment, they are condemning themselves. Because the law also says that a false judge and one who practices partiality will be punished. So they like, yo, Joe, did y'all check? Did y'all, the Torah, did you check that out before? Dog, I forget. <laughs> right? It was this double standard that they were living on. In religion, does that to us. Religion will have us calling out a speck in somebody else's eye while we have a log in ours in a way that is unhelpful and in a way that completely diminishes the other person and affirms our own self-righteousness. She said, I got something for you. Scholars. This begins to write in the ground. right in the ground. It's like I caught you guys in some sin here. But this is absolutely fascinating as we draw to a close. It's absolutely fascinating what Jesus does here. Verse 10. At the stooping down, just imagine this woman. She's hearing stones fall to the floor. (laughs) She's hearing people walk away. She looks up and she sees Jesus. It's just him and her. But notice how, this is the gospel way, this is the church way, this is how we deal with sexual sin. So why it's not oppressive, it's not repressive, it is absolutely astonishing and liberating. This is the gospel. Look at this, look at what he does. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Listen to what she says. Not no one, sir. Not no one rabbi. Not no one good teacher. But no one Lord. (laughs) She realizes that she has just encountered God. She has just encountered true wisdom. She's broken. She knows she's broken. Look at this. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. 
go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, let's, first, let's notice the order. Neither do I condemn. And then he says, go and sin no more. That's a gospel order. How could Jesus not condemn this woman? How could he not allow her to be stoned right now? It's because Jesus would be stoned for her. It's because Jesus would be taken outside of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha, on a mountain called Calvary. He would travel a road known as the Via Dolorosa, that road of sorrow. And he is going to take the punishment that this woman deserves. That's the gospel, that we all are sinners. That we all deserve God's wrath. That we all deserve to be separated from a holy and a righteous God. But because of Jesus, we are not condemned. We are justified, declared righteous. We are made right with God because of his sacrifice. Neither do I condemn you. That's his message to the one today who... No, you know that you're in sexual sin or you have committed sexual sin and you have <laughs> and you are in need of repentance and restoration. Jesus is not hurling accusations at you that Satan's job. Jesus is standing and he's saying, Come to me. Come to me, you who are broken. Come to me, young man who was exposed to pornography at a young age. Come to me from your darkness and your dungeon and your love of those pixel computer screens and I will give you rest. But here's the thing. True grace, true grace always calls us to grow. When God gives us grace, he doesn't say now continue in sin. Romans 6, 1. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Look at what he says here. And from now on, sin no more. From now on, do not commit your mind and your heart to sin. That's the gospel. And that's what Christians believe. We believe a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. We believe. We believe that Jesus renews us with grace. We believe after that that we are no longer committed to a sin. Uh, we may fall or stumble into sin, but because we've put our faith and trust in Christ, we don't cherish that sin, we don't love that sin, we don't seek to keep that sin, and when we do, we run to the Lord, we run to other people, we confess our sins, James chapter 5, so that we will be healed. He's saying, go and live a life committed to me. That's the Christian message. Faith is what saves us. But that faith has a work. <laughs> it, 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 that the, the fruit of it works. It, it does what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's, we realize through the Holy Spirit and through preaching, our faith grows as the preached word goes forth. As we're around other believers, the Holy Spirit begins to convict us. And we see that sin, and now we're willing to cut off our right hand. Cut off our right, uh, take out our right eye. We're willing to 
eliminate the things that would cause us to stumble. Because our Savior, our Lord, saves us from God's wrath, from being stoned, from being in hell for all eternity. So this is the posture, Christians. This is the posture of the church when one falls morally. It's not to condemn and to to hurt them, to embarrass them. It's to come alongside them with open arms and say, repent, get up. And then we celebrate like Luke 15, that father who celebrated his son who went astray. We, we throw a party for him and we say, praise God. You were lost and now you are found. You know, the greatest victory in David's life the greatest victory in David's life was not him defeating Goliath, in my opinion. It was him repenting from his adultery with Bathsheba and his murdering of her husband. It's not about letting our sin define us. That, should, that shouldn't define us. What should define us is whether or not we got up. You are not your past. You are not your scars. You are not your brokenness. You are not defined by your thorn in the flesh. You are God's child. You are no longer a slave to sin, Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation. As you set your mind on the things that are above, Colossians chapter 1 and 2, as you set your mind on the spirit and not the flesh, you will experience victory through Christ Jesus. As we close, I want to give our sixth myth. Our sixth myth is this. It's too late for me. Sexual sin is so powerful, nothing can loosen its grip on my life. And as I just said, that's a myth. The truth is, is that who the sun sets free is free indeed. May struggle, you may have some valleys, but the Bible teaches us progressive sanctification. Amen. Titus uh, teaches us about grace, that the grace of God trains us, it teaches us to renounce ungodliness. As we are seeking God through his word, Psalm 119, as we are hiding God's word in our heart, as we are running to Christian community, God is giving us the power, stirring up the Holy Spirit inside of us, helping us to be better and better and better in our Christian walk. So what do you need to do if you're in, caught in sin today like this, one, this woman? Number one, you need to be honest. You need to be honest. If you're trying to hide your sin, if you're constantly deleting your your search history, if you fear someone finding out and you're not ready to be honest, you're not ready to be free. 
But I want to tell you, this is a place where you can be honest and be free. This is a place, I'm telling you, come to me, come to one of the pastors. This is a place where you receive grace because we know what it's like to be sinners. Why? Because we're sinners. But we have experienced the power of God and we know that God can free you. Be honest. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Listen, your exposure, your confessing your sin is the gateway to eternal life. This woman, exposure, though it was embarrassing, though it was tough, though it was hard, was a gateway to eternal life. It's a gateway to freedom. Second, repent and confess your sin. First, uh, John 1 and 9, not only do we need to be honest, but we need to repent and confess. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sin to the Lord. If it's something that you're entangled in and it's, and it's addiction, it's something that you just can't break free from, make sure you run to another believer and ask for help. Third, forsake your sinful behavior. We talked about this again. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Proverbs 28, 13. Matthew 5, 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that one of your members... Uh, to lose one of your members, then your whole body to hell. Amen? I said I, meant hand. Amen. Oh, I did. So, uh, the church is not sexually repressive. The church is a place that stands on God's word, and God has um, called us to be sexually uh, pure and, and chaste if we're not married. And if we find ourselves struggling and falling into sin, we confess and forsake that sin uh, by running to God, God's word, God's people, and receiving grace. And receiving grace. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We thank you, Father God, that he loves us so much that he died in our place. Thank you so much, Father God, that he uh, is our advocate, that he is our warrior. Thank you so much, Father God, that uh, he doesn't allow us to soak and to, to die by Satan's accusations. We know that Satan is an accuser, Lord, and that's his job, is to remind us of who we're not and what we're not. But Father, we pray that you would give us the helmet of salvation and give us the strength to put it on, as Ephesians chapter 6 says that we will remind ourselves of our salvation, that we remind ourselves that we have been justified, we have been declared righteous, that we remind ourselves that we are in the process of being sanctified, that you have saved us from our past, present, and future sins, that we are forgiven, that we are forgiven, that we don't have to hold guilt, we don't have to walk around feeling condemned, but that in you are free, but at the same time, that true grace challenges us and calls us to grow, and it also empowers us to grow. Help us today, Father God, to no longer hide in darkness, but to reveal ourselves to the light. Jesus is the light of the world. 
Help us to be like this woman, to be broken, to fall on our faces and say, we have sinned, we need mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.